A good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falking Around podcast. Hope you're having a good Tuesday. It's cooled off a little bit here in the Flower City. Windows are open, air conditioning turned off. Something that I think the month of July did not allow us to do. It's turning towards football season. Different things in the air feel like football season. Days seemingly getting a little shorter. Nights getting a little cooler. All of these things I equate to my youth of football season, and I'm hoping we'll have a football season coming up, not only at the NFL level, but at the college level, and certainly at the lower levels, I feel, for all the high school kids who have put so much work in and looking for an opportunity to play a a great sport. Actually, all sports, I'm hoping, will come back. But we'll see where that goes. We're going to talk some football today, certainly got some Buffalo Bills news to discuss along with the rest of the NFL. I got a great sound clip from Kyle Shanahan. And, you know, here's a guy that if you listen to experts, you listen to people talk. Kyle Shanahan's one of the most respected coaches from people who seem to know the game well. This sound that you're going to hear later in the show may show you part of why they think so much of him because it's an interesting guy. And, There's one flaw. Again, I will talk about that when we get to Kyle Shanahan, but there's one flaw with this guy that I and I'm sure a lot of Falcon fans will never get over. We're going to start with Major League Baseball, and the season's going on for some teams. The Marlins have been shut down, though. They're hoping to get back on the field on Wednesday. They're hoping to get to the point where they can resume their season. It's going to be an interesting team they put together. They've called up people from their 60-man roster. They've also added some people who were free agents, made a couple trades. They've done whatever they can to field a team. The St. Louis Cardinals are the latest team with a bit of an outbreak. Their games have been canceled through the weekend. It's just so strange when you look at these teams and what they're put up against. And to try to have a season while other things are going on is something that we haven't seen before. And while baseball is trying to make it work, this is a cautionary tale. The NFL is going to try to do the same thing baseball is trying to do. Now, football, one day a week. So it is a little different that way. However, it's 16 games in 17 weeks. I personally think at this point, football should alter their schedule to create different things. We'll talk about that as well, but... Baseball's pretty much the guinea pig for the NFL. It's not doing great, but there are teams that are going out and playing, and there's real baseball being played. And right now, baseball, the the game on the field, not the game that's being held away, is being dominated by the team that we expected to be very good, the New York Yankees. The Yankees are now... 9-1 9-1 and one through the first 10 games of the season. They're one-sixth of the way through this shortened season and are 9-1. James, I'm sorry, Garrett Cole started again last night, a game that was interrupted by rain, and Cole won his third straight game. Cole might win 20 in this shortened season, and you say, no, he's not even going to get 20 starts. Well, so far, he started... A th- 30% of their games. He started 3 of 10. 
So multiply that out. There's a chance he could get close to that many wins. It's not likely and it won't happen, I'm sure. But he has been as advertised. The Knights, Cole takes the mound, the three of the ten Knights. The bullpen gets a little bit of a break. The Yankees' strength is two things, in my opinion. It's their offense, which is deep and extremely talented, and it is their bullpen, which is going to get even deeper very soon. Aroldis Chapman, who was somebody who had COVID-19, he now is getting close to rejoining the club. Zach Britton, who's been lights out so far as the Yankees' closer, he will then go to a setup man. Chapman will close games. Everyone moves back. Anini, Adovino, Green, they all get less leverage situations, making them, and theoretically, of course, more effective in their roles. So the Yankee bullpen gets better and better. The Yankee offense, as much as you have to love Aaron Judge, and look, what's not to love about this guy? He's seemingly a really good kid. He's a guy who's now in his fourth season in the league. He's a huge man, six foot seven, 280 pounds. He is somebody who you look at him and, and you think he's Ruthian-esque in that he's got size, he hits prodigious home runs. He's done a lot of great things early on, but he's 28 years old and the Yankees are going to have a decision to make. So far now through the 10 games, six home runs, 14 RBIs for Aaron Judge. He is somebody who is just going to continue, in my opinion, to become a better player if if he can stay healthy. And he's doing great so far. But I think when we talk about Aaron Judge and we talk about his greatness, we get carried away. And that, by we, I mean... Everybody, Yankee fans certainly do. They love the guy, and rightly so, for all the reasons I just mentioned. The casual fans, seeing a guy hit one 480, that's fun to watch. It really is. So we all get carried away. But if you're a major league announcer, a guy who, if you didn't cheat, would be a Hall of Famer, you'd think you'd be a little bit smarter than to go overboard with Aaron Judge. Take a listen. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, LeBron James, Aaron Judge. Is this one of those cognitive tests that the president had to take? What doesn't belong? Because I think we could all get that one pretty easily. Let's see. The greatest basketball player of all time. The greatest golfer in the last 
40 years, maybe the second best golfer of all time, and certainly the most dominant golfer in his era, Tiger Woods. And the guy whose biggest sin is he's not better than Michael Jordan. So you look at those guys and the championships and the way they've won Aaron Judge. Remember that World Series game he had three? No, no, no. Well, how about like the game clinching? No, no. Look, all the reasons I said earlier, I love watching Aaron Judge play baseball. He's an athletic young man. He's the poster child for playing different sports growing up. He was a very good tight end in football. Could have played college football. Was a really good basketball player as well. Could have played college hoops. And obviously he's an excellent baseball player. But Aaron Judge isn't even the best player on his team. Remember the time you thought Michael Jordan wasn't the best player on his team? Uh, No, that never happened. Remember the time LeBron wasn't the best player on his team? No, no, that never happened. Even though Anthony Davis is great, LeBron's far and away the best player on his team still in his 17th year. Remember the time Tiger Woods wasn't the guy that you thought would be a champion every time he teed it up? Yeah, no, no. During his prime, absolutely not. Yet A-Rod is comparing him. It's a joke. I mean, again, I've said this before. If you're a Yankee fan, it's as much as this may hurt to say it, you invested Glaber Torres, not Aaron Judge. If you have to give one of them a long-term deal, you give it to Torres. And Torres is struggling, but he's 23 years old, and he's a middle infielder. Judge is a 28-year-old guy whose body hasn't been able to handle the regular season for the last two years. And he's an outfielder. Outfielders are a dime a dozen. Great shortstops aren't. So let's slow down the Aaron Judge hype train. Let's enjoy it, certainly, because he's been great and he is fun to watch. Enjoy it, but have some perspective. Really, it it is just... So far and away to me, a, a, a Yankee thing, and, and I get it. The Yankees are the most popular team in the sport by far. Maybe they and the Cowboys, the two most popular teams in the country, if you think about it. When you mass market everything, there are three teams that I put as the biggest teams, and they, they have the widest ranging fans, Notre Dame football goes everywhere that is a huge fan base the cowboys huge fan base the yankees a huge fan base i don't know if there's another team you throw in there judge is the most interesting player on that team it's going to get the notoriety but it's almost like jeter And, and one of the things that used to get me about jeter and the yankees was every time somebody else would hit a home run the cameras would naturally flash to jeter in the dugout A-Rod would hit a home run, and Jeter would get the camera. It was strange. A-Rod now is doing the same thing, and the Yankees broadcasters certainly are going to because Judge is their bell cow. He's the guy that their show pony, if you will. They just continue to hype him. And again, it's not a negative on his ability to play. He can play. Just stay healthy for an entire season, even if it's only a 60-game season season 
But the Yankees have been great in spite of a few things. The other starting pitchers, not named Garrett Cole, have not been good. James Paxton has been a disaster in his first two starts. Gary Sanchez has two more hits than I do so far this year. Luke Voigt looks like the guy I always say he is, a, a nice guy to have on your bench who could come off the bench and pinch it late in innings. DJ LeMahieu has just been unbelievable since the Yankees signed him. You want a Yankee Met thing? Last offseason, not the most recent offseason. The Mets went out and signed Jed Lowry, who's currently on milk cartons throughout the tri-state area with some sort of interesting knee ailment, whatever. The Mets signed Jed Lowry. The Yankees go sign DJ LeMayu. If you ever want to know what the difference between the Yankees and Mets are, it's that right there. One makes a great decision. One makes the worst decision of all time. Well, it's the Mets, so it's probably top 50 in their franchise history. But you look further down. Brett Gardner has not been good. Aaron Hicks has not been good yet. They've struggled offensively. Their pitching has struggled, yet they've lost one game. This is a team that will play for a championship. The only question is, in my opinion, who do they have to beat to get there, and who do they match up against in the World Series? Oh, yeah, the third question, which is probably the most important question, does the season allow itself to play out? So the Yankees are doing what Yankees are expected to do. I mentioned the Yankee-Met comparison, so I just spoke glowingly about the Yankees. Now let's turn our attention to the clown show that is the Mets. Last week I ripped Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball for the clown show that they run. Rob Manfred's predecessor, if you will, Bud Selig, should have done something that he did previously to the Mets' ownership group. He should have forced the Wilpons to vacate the premises the way he did Frank McCord at the Dodgers. It's been bad for baseball to have the Wilpons, who are financially strapped because of the Bernie Madoff situation, running the team, considering all that they've done. But it's not just the lack of money. Organizations, and I'm going to get to this when I get to the Bills, have a culture. And that culture can be an incredibly positive thing, or it could be a cancer. It can be a detrimental thing to your organization. There are groups of people in every organization that are disasters. If you work in an office, you could look around and say, that guy, that girl, and that other guy, they got to go. They're horrible. They're horrible for the morale. Any group of people you work with, you're going to find that. It's part of what we are as a nation. We're not all good. We're not all bad, but we're certainly not all good. And if your top end of the organization is that cancer, it is that problem, it can't help but permeate all the way through the organization. Thus is the case with the Wilpons and the Mets. Not only do they not have the money necessary to run a big market team properly or in accordance with the way baseball wants it to do, they make decisions that are just befuddling. Their most recent hire as a general manager, Brody Van Wagenen, was a former agent. Van Wagenen has done some 
terrible things in his two-year tenure. I'd like to say he's done some good things, but other than the acquisition of J.D. Davis, I really struggle to find a good thing that he has done. But I certainly can list a lot of bad things. I'll save that for a minute, because the story at hand is the Mets handling and loss or opting out of mercurial outfielder Ioannis Cespedes. Cespedes, who was a key part of the Mets making it to the World Series back in 2015. He then signed a contract with the Mets, a four-year, $110 million deal. If you remember back then, Brody Van Wagenen was his agent who negotiated that contract with the Mets. Van Wagenen, the same guy who's now the GM. So this past couple of years for Cespedes has been interesting. Can we go with that? He has missed time because of surgery on both heels. He had calcium deposits on his heels that he had to have removed. So he missed significant time in the 2017 and 18 season. And while he was rehabbing that in the offseason of 2018-19, he stepped in a hole while being chased by a wild boar on his ranch in Florida. No, I'm not making that up. I mean, it's it's a legit story. You can Google it. It happened. So all of these things have gone on with Cespedes. And meanwhile, here's a dude who chain smokes in the clubhouse, is pretty aloof, keeps to himself, never been a great teammate, seems to play every time his contract is up and gets himself some more money. Meanwhile, he's got tantalizing ability, prodigious power, great arm, but just doesn't really want to play all that often. So when you look at Cespedes, you think, he's very much a part of the story with the Mets. And he became so this offseason. Because of his injury being a non-baseball injury, the Mets were able to renegotiate the final year of his contract. Instead of paying him the $28 million that he was due, they renegotiated it to a $6 million contract that is heavily incentivized based on playing time. If he doesn't play, he doesn't start games, he's not going to achieve his incentives. He's benched up in Boston because the team got into the team hotel later than they wanted to. Sunday, he was left out of the lineup on down in Atlanta because it's a day game after a night game. He's a veteran. Look, Cespedes has been DHing. It's long been known, too, that the Mets, their lineup isn't always made by the manager. And I say isn't always. Go back to what I said about the Wilpons being the cancer. They have input on the daily lineup, as does Brody Van Wagen. The three of them huddle with the manager via Skype, as we're doing here, or if they're in New York in the manager's office, and come up with a lineup for that day. Absolutely, the Wilpons were thinking about Cespedes and his contract when they decided to bench him twice in the first 10 games of the season. There is no doubt that was part of the deal. Yet, they don't care because it's all about money to them. They're trying to sell the team. They're trying to actually get out from under. A-Rod, the idiot who thinks Aaron Judge is the next Michael Jordan, is one of the potential buyers along with his wife, Jennifer Lopez, which would be so very Mets if this were to happen. But no other franchise has players opting out just by not showing up at the stadium. 
Mets outfielder Brandon Nimmo, who, according to all reports, is one of the true good guys in Major League Baseball, was asked about the situation yesterday. Brandon Nimmo said that I've heard multiple sides of the story, that the team did know before the game that Cespedes was opting out, and then there's the team's version. That's how Brandon Nimmo gave his opinion or gave his statement. When your outfielder doesn't know which to believe, the player's side or the team side, what does that tell you about what the players in the locker room think about the organization they work for? They realize it's a clown show, and yet it still goes on. This season, again, has been a disaster because Brody Van Wagenen continues to make bad moves. Brought in Jerry's Familia last year, who pitched to an over-5 ERA. This year's former good reliever you brought in was Dallin Batances. Batances, who was great a few years back with the Yankees. It's been a disaster early on. And, of course, you can't talk about Brody Van Wagenen and disaster without bringing up Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano. While Cano has actually hit well, Diaz has been hit, well, like a pinata ever since he donned the Mets uniforms. Meanwhile, Justin Dunn, the other guy who was setting that deal to Seattle, has broken camp with the Mariners and is in their starting rotation. Not to mention Jared Klenick, who a former number one draft pick for the Mets, who is a budding superstar and one of the top 15 prospects in all of baseball. The Mets, their landscape is barren. They had Pete Alonso come up last year and do great things. But it's just never going to work. They continue to make the same mistakes. Definition of insanity is make the same move over and over again, expect a different result. That is the Mets in a nutshell. And all while this is going on, there are a few bright spots, young Third baseman shortstop, if you will, Andres Jimenez, looks really good. This is a kid who the Mets have as their top prospect. He's only 21 years old and already looks like he could be a major league ball player. And, of course, a guy who I think is the best pitcher in all of baseball, Jake DeGrom. And if you want to understand how bad the Mets are and if you want to understand the frustration of someone like me who is a Mets fan – what we deal with. Jake DeGrom, like I said, is the best pitcher in baseball, in my opinion. He's won the last two National League Cy Youngs. But the Mets can't even do that right to this point. Jake DeGrom, who got a win last night, and actually the Mets scored some runs for him. It was a strange outing all along. Is in the last 67 starts now, DeGrom is 22-17. and 17 which I, I said he's the best pitcher in baseball. He's five games over 500 in his last 67 games. How about these numbers? In Jake DeGrom's last 67 starts, the Mets as a team are 30-37. and 37. But, Carl, you just said this guy's the best pitcher in baseball. I believe that to be true. In those 67 outings, he has thrown 400 in 38 innings pitched. If you do quick math, it's almost seven innings per start, which if you average seven innings per start in this era of pitch counts, 
That's something right there. In those 438 innings, he's allowed 315 hits. Oh, that's that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. He has allowed 100 earned runs, only 111 runs. And the Mets' defense is terrible and has been for years. Can't seem to get it right. That's a 2.06 ERA. I'll say that again. 2.06 ERA in the last 67 starts, of which the team is seven games under 500. It's 546 strikeouts in those 438 innings pitched. That's pretty good, too. He's only walked 93 hitters. His whip walks and hits per innings pitched. Anything below one is phenomenal. He's .932, and the team is disastrous, 30 and 37. It's just unreal. And if I trusted the general manager more, I actually may think that the best way for the Mets to fix themselves is to trade Jacob deGrom, and it wouldn't be shocked if they did so. He's making over $30 million a year, and I just told you about the Wilpons' cheapness. So this is something that I think is a real possibility in the next month. Jake DeGrom, the best pitcher in baseball, being traded to someone for a boatload of prospects by a general manager who's going to be fired the minute the new owner comes into power. It shouldn't be allowed to happen. But Rob Manfred is a clown, as we discussed last week, and he will allow it to happen. That'd be like you buying a company. The company has one great thing that you're going to build the new business around. And after you agree to buy it, they sell off the one thing you bought the company for. That's the reality of the situation. And it is not good. Major League Baseball has another problem that is going on right now. And it is the injury situation to starting pitchers. And it's only going to get worse. Teams being shut down for days and potentially weeks at a time like the Marlins. It's not good for baseball players. It's not healthy. Shohei Otani, who is one of the more interesting players in the league because he's both a hitter and a pitcher, had Tommy John surgery and was making his way back to the rotation. He was removed from Sunday's game and had an MRI. He's now shut down. Otani, who as a pitcher was throwing 97-98 when he was healthy, was throwing 88-90 to on Sunday. Not good. Last night, one of the bright young pitchers in the game, Mike Soroka of the Atlanta Braves, tore his Achilles tendon, will be lost for the year. The Braves are a great young team. They are the antithesis of the Mets. They do things incredibly well. They do everything incredibly well. They scout and develop talent. They make trades. They bring in prospects. They keep their payroll where it can be managed. They are, if you want to run a franchise, do so like the Braves. And the Mets should try to emulate the team in their division. But the Braves were dealt a bad hand last night. Soroka was a seemingly innocuous play. He was struggling with his command last night. So you wonder if maybe that ankle was bothering him as he went out there, but as he went off the mound to cover first on a grounder to the left-hand side, or the right-hand side, he ended up tearing his Achilles tendon. Brutal injury. You knew it right away. 
baseball now, I think there's something like 31 pitchers who have been hurt in the first week and a half. It's not good, and it's only going to get worse. Unfortunately, these are the downsides of the way the baseball season is going to be played. And again, as we transition to other sports, keep an eye on baseball because how things go in baseball is going to show you how things will ultimately be for the rest of sports because baseball's trying to do it. Football is going to try and follow their lead. Speaking of football, let's move to the Buffalo Bills. Bills had a setback this week. As they opened camp, 81 players are now in Buffalo at one Bills drive. That's the new home for training camp, and I don't think just for this year. Training camp in Buffalo will be held at New Era Field, or what used to be New Era Field, at one Bills drive from here on out. The Bills have lost a key member, though, this past week. Jonathan Feliciano, their good guard. He's not a great guard, but he's a great part of the culture in Buffalo. He's a guy who brings some attitude and some toughness to that offensive line, along with some experience. Had a torn pectoral muscle. He'll probably miss four to six games, depending on the recovery. Is this a huge loss? No, I don't think it is. I, I think it's more of a loss in the locker room and the continuity with what the Bills were hoping to do on the offensive side of the ball. If Feliciano was there, then Cody Ford comes back, hopefully, to try to reclaim the right tackle position. I've always believed that Cody Ford is much better at right guard than he is at right tackle. I just think he's a big mauler who struggles in space. In tackle, at at tackle, you're going to have to play in space, and I don't think Cody Ford is great at that. But you put him inside, his strength, his athleticism pays off. And I think ultimately the Jonathan Feliciano injury could be a blessing in disguise because now Ford could get all of training camp, if this is what Brandon Bean and McDermott decide they're going to do, get entire training camp inside at guard to work on things. Now, if you move a guy from right tackle to right guard, who do you have at right tackle? Well, Daryl Williams was a free agent that signed with the Bills this year. He played a bunch of games at right tackle last year for Carolina and was pretty good. There's also Ty Secchi, who went healthy last year, I thought was a better tackle than Cody Ford. Ford got the opportunity to continue to be at right tackle in large part because he was a second-round draft pick. He could still be extremely valuable as a second-round pick at guard. It's just a matter of accepting that this guy is better there. The Bills also did something I thought was very smart. They went out and signed a guy that the Jets caught over the weekend, Brian Winters. Winters started almost 80 games for the Jets over the past few years. He's not a great player, but he's an experienced player. That's kind of what the Bills have done with their offensive line. Guys like Feliciano and and Quentin Spain, they're not great players, but they are experienced players going forward. So the Bills have also had, obviously, some opt-outs. E.J. Gaines, Star Latulale. The NFL came down with a ruling that because these players have opted out, and obviously many have, the salary cap will be adjusted so that they're 
cap hits for bonuses will not be on this year's cap. So the Bills picked up about $8 million in cap space for this year. That could be an important thing as they look to possibly re-sign either Deion Dawkins, maybe Matt Milano. They could load up this year with that signing bonus, rip up this year's deals, give them the signing bonus in this year to help their accounting down the road. So interesting way of, of doing things for the Bills. I think they've handled things exceedingly well this offseason. Brandon Bean seems to have a great finger on the pulse of this team. But to me, the biggest change in Buffalo, and go back to what I said about the Mets, the, the culture, the, the cancer starts at the top. For the Bills, it's the opposite. The culture starts at the top, and it starts with Sean McDermott. McDermott, the trust-the-process guy, the guy who always is going to come up with a slogan or come up with something, he believes in team. And I think this year more than ever, with a team playing, maybe living together in some sort of pseudo-bubble situation that the Saints are going to try to do, I think the culture of a team is going to be more important than ever before. Fans aren't going to be there. You're not going to have that energy to draw from. You've got to draw from yourself. And Sean McDermott seems to do that as well, if not better, than anybody. Check this sound clip out from yesterday when McDermott met with the media, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Every decision that I make as a coach, every decision that every teammate of mine and every person in this building, which we're all teammates, make has got to be, you know, with with so much love and appreciation and respect for everyone else's health and safety that we're not going to let each other down. And that, to me, is the sign of a real team. That every decision I make, I have so much love for you and your family that every decision I make on the field, off the field, that I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you or your family down. As I said to the players, you can't be afraid to speak up. If I'm if I'm with Derek and he's not masked up, I said I have to say, Derek, back up or mask up. Mask up or back up. It's a simple thing. I could see that being somewhere all over the internet by the weekend. T-shirts, mask up or back up with the Bills logo. This is McDermott in a nutshell. Finds a way to connect with people. He's a people person. He understands the importance of that. And it's something that the Bills hadn't had for a long, long time. The Pagulas don't have that in the rest of their organizations. But McDermott is the biggest voice in that organization, and he's the one who has it in spades. It's a great character trait for Sean McDermott, and it permeates through the team. Josh Allen met with the media yesterday, and he talked about something that I thought was exceedingly important as well. He built a film study room in his house. I remember being at training camp last year and talking with the great Vic Carucci, who, as many of you know, is, is a longtime legendary reporter for the Buffalo News. He's covered the NFL for decades. And Vic talked about Jim Kelly. And what people don't know about Jim Kelly is what a student of the game Kelly became as he went through his time in Buffalo. How much film study he put in. How much work he put in 
to understand the offense and to read defenses. And to me, this is where Josh Allen can take his biggest step forward. Allen may never be an extremely accurate quarterback. He's not going to be Drew Brees. Simply not going to happen. But the more accurate he is, the more quickly he's able to read a defense, this team will benefit. He doesn't have to be pinpoint accuracy. If he makes the read and finds the open guy, it gets the ball to him in a timely fashion. He's just got to be pseudo-accurate, if you will. Again, Drew Brees will never be a comparison for Josh Allen. But getting better at the line of scrimmage, understanding where the ball is going to go, will help everything about him. That means his mechanics can get under him. He can release and, and, and make throws with his feet under him, with proper mechanics. All of those things will help the accuracy. They'll also give bigger windows to throw the football. So I think Allen could take a big step forward again this year. I've talked many times how this year is very much on Josh Allen to take that step forward and become the quarterback that the Bills drafted him to become. Shown glimpses, both good and bad, in his first couple years in the league. He needs to continue to develop and work, but the film study portion of it, if that work has gone on and he continues to grow with his understanding of the game from a mental standpoint, I think he has a chance to become a real good quarterback in this league. So keep your eye on that as we go through. One, one other Bill's note, and I think this is an interesting note, being a guy who used to be on radio and obviously very interested in the media, I was interested to see that Chris Brown got the full-time gig on One Bill's Live, a show that many people – here in Rochester and obviously in Buffalo, listen to. Chris Brown is an extremely analytic guy. I used to have him on my radio show quite a bit and understands the ins and outs of football very well. He's also a student of the Bills. Will be a great replacement for John Murphy. Antonio Brown got an eight-game suspension from the NFL. I know AB is somebody who's retired a bunch of times and he's a problem child. This guy's also one of the best receivers in the NFL when he's on the field. Hasn't been on the field in a couple years other than a game last year with the Patriots. But keep an eye on Antonio Brown now. Teams were always going to be reluctant to sign a guy who is a problem child. When that problem child has suspension hanging over his head, it's also going to be problematic for teams to sign him. Teams now know he's going to miss eight games. And one team to keep an eye on is the Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks are also interested in bringing back Josh Gordon. They think if he is reinstated, he can help their team. And I would agree because Josh Gordon's a heck of a receiver when he's on the field. Unfortunately, he has issues with substance abuse. But remember, marijuana is no longer part of the testing program in the NFL. So I think Josh Gordon could get back on the field sooner rather than later. As for Antonio Brown, the team that signs him, I think gets somebody who can change their season. And I'm going to give you a name of a team that I think could be in the running to sign him. And think about the second half of the season if this happens. 
the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady loves A.B. Had him stay at his house when they were in New England. Has wanted the Buccaneers to sign him. Well, now you look at the Bucs and you say, well, they've got one of the best receiving duos in all of football with Chris Godwin and, of course, Mike Evans. And I agree with that. Those are two big body wide receivers who could stretch the field. A.B. is the perfect slot complement to them. You add that to an offense that has Rob Gronkowski as a tight end, Cameron Brake as a tight end, O.J. Howard. I think Tom Brady will absolutely do everything in his power to convince the Buccaneers to potentially sign Antonio Brown. Keep an eye on that. This fall, if the NFL plays, there will likely be very few fans in attendance. In L.A., there's a brand-new stadium opening up for two teams, the Chargers and the Rams. No fans will be in attendance, and that $5 billion, yeah, $5 billion stadium. In Vegas, the Raiders announced the other day that they won't have fans in their new stadium. $8 billion worth of stadiums and no fans. What I wonder is this. The Bills and the Pagulas for years have been pressured by the NFL to build a new stadium. Is that still a thing? Is that still an important part going forward? Stadium revenues are obviously a huge part of the NFL balance sheet. When you look at how they're going to figure out a way to make money, it's all about the luxury suites. It's all about the premium seating. In-stadium revenues are a huge part of the NFL. Or were. Do we really think that 2021 fans will be back, 80,000, 70,000, 50,000, whatever the case may be, will be back in the stadium? The Bills have a decision to make as they only have a few years left on their lease at what was formerly known as New Era Field. Do they build a new stadium in this environment, in this time? Where's that money going to come from? The Gulas don't want to spend it. They're more worried about maintaining their lifestyle. New York State's not going to give them that money. They don't have enough money to do the right things for the schools post-pandemic. It was my belief always that the Pagulas envisioned a downtown stadium for a couple of reasons. One, they own a bunch of property down there already anyway. It would complement their other businesses there. They would eliminate, for the most part, the on premise tailgating that goes on that has become legendary but they don't like that image as part of theirs they also with their many bars and restaurants that they own in the area that the stadium would be would have an alternative to the tailgating that goes on they could make money off of that and we know the pagulas like money but the reality is this the nfl they can't expect teams to build new stadiums post-pandemic. This is a uncharted territory for not only all, not only the NFL, but for all of us. And the economics have changed. I really think that the NFL needs to forget about building stadiums for a little while and maybe even create a moratorium that no new stadium construction or deals get pushed forward for the next five years. Allow the communities to regroup and re recoup some of the lost money and tax revenue that they had because of the pandemic. 
the Rock has bought the XFL. The XFL is something that I think could be a huge part of the NFL if the NFL decided it wanted to have a minor league football program. I think the XFL is a great idea and a great learning tool. But the NFL has been resistant to allow that to happen. Now that The Rock owns it and the group that he bought it with has ties to the NFL, I think more than ever this is a possibility that a spring football league treated by the NFL as a minor league developmental situation not only helps with players, but it would help groom coaches, giving guys an opportunity to become a head coach. The refereeing aspect would be huge. You could try different rules. You could implement things. And meanwhile, instead of hoping referees get better by not seeing games, referees could actually work year-round. That's an important way to get better as a referee. So I'm intrigued to see that. One of the bright young minds in the NFL is Kyle Shanahan, as I talked about the beginning of the podcast. Shanahan, who I still hold against him, that one more running play in the Super Bowl a couple years ago and the Falcons are hoisting the trophy, not the Patriots, is somebody who's respected so much. And he just got an extension, which is going to cost the Pagoulas a lot of money because Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott are very much in the same boat as Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch are with the 49ers. They won't get as much, but they need to get the same amount of time and at least a close dollar amount. But listen to the brilliance and the simplicity of Kyle Shanahan talking about his offensive philosophy. We had, what, 190 plays going into a game, maybe over 200? Just, you know, I don't want you to tell us anything you don't want to tell us, but, like, how many plays do you go into a game with now at this point? See, it's so different now because, like, I might have 30 types of plays, which aren't much. Um, right. But it's a way to organize it and a way to pair them together and a way to mix five eligibles around. I mean, if you have 30 types of concepts and you have five eligibles between your backs, tight ends, and receivers who are somewhat interchangeable, like, right. what, what do those different packages give me? All right, if I put out two tight ends, well, now – based off of our studies, you're getting these type of coverages. All right, well, now I'm going to package this stuff with that. And, and it's how to run stuff that you're good at, that your quarterback's good at, stuff that you can always do, but you're still attacking the defense and they don't know what they're going to get. And so you got to find ways that it looks different because it is different, but your quarterback's doing the same thing he did the first day you met him. He is taking a hitch and throwing a one. If he's not there, he's going to two. If someone's under there, he's checking it down to three. And, and like that never changes but you can change that in so many ways with how you deploy guys, whether you do it from wide splits, stack splits, you can have a way to be in three by one, but run the same play the next week out of two by two, just in how you use your back. It's, um, it's, it's really just numbers, you know, and then it depends who you're going against. You go against guys who just play zone and defend areas of the field. Or then you go against guys like Belichick, who to me played the numbers battle. He's got 11 guys and you got 11. He knows he's got to stop five eligibles. If he's going to rush four, He's got six left, but he wants to double this guy. So now he's got here, and it, it almost becomes math and where on what you're attacking. So there's all these different ways to do it, and it never stops. And, and it's throughout the game, and you can't, I mean, you can't control it all. 
but you can prepare the best. And that's to me, what's different about football than every other sport. Like it's not continuous play. Like we have 11 guys, we're calling a play and that play is lasting about four seconds. And there's 22 people on the field that are in chaos, but they're coordinated. And then you huddle up or you do a no huddle, but then you get the assignment again and you go out again and try to execute it. Not any other sports are really like that. And that's why like... I enjoyed seeing Chris Sims' face just nodding. Uh-huh, 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 yeah. It's crazy because Shannon's father, Mike Shannon, when he was coaching the Denver Broncos, had a system for running the football that no matter who the back was, you knew that the Broncos were going to be able to run the ball. It was a blocking scheme that worked exceedingly well. Kyle Shanahan has figured out a way to – take advantage of mismatches. I feel that offensively, as far as scheme, that Kyle Shanahan and Sean Payton are by far the two best when it comes to getting players in position to make plays. Shanahan doesn't have the great skill talent. He doesn't have the Michael Thomas on the outside. But I think he's got enough, and I think he's got enough confidence in a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo to make the throws and the decisions that he needs to make. But I, what I really liked about Shanahan as the 49ers went through the playoffs last year, they basically stopped throwing the ball. They knew they had a defensive advantage in every game they went into. He ran the heck out of it all the way through and he used many different backs to do so. A smart coach coaches with what he has, adjusts his system to what he has. I think Kyle Shanahan is doing that exceedingly well. So good stuff there from Chris Sims and Kyle Shanahan. The NBA and NHL restarts are going along perfectly. The NHL, they had a fight about five minutes into the first game and a real fight. And you didn't know how it was going to be to have hockey in August and late July. I was in right then. You see the hitting. You see the chippiness. Last night, Connor McDavid got a hat trick because Connor McDavid is spectacular. Look, Edmonton's not good. McDavid is the best player in hockey, and I don't think it's close right now. As good as Ovi is and Sidney Crosby, if I could watch one player, Every day it would be Connor McDavid. The Lakers-Clippers, the first game that those two teams played in the restart, what you saw was LeBron James locking up people on defense at the end of a game. It looked like a playoff-type atmosphere. The games in the NBA and NHL have been really good, really good. And if you're a sports junkie, they're on all day, every day. It is like March Madness in July and August now. It's fantastic. Really enjoyed it. One thing i got to point out about the NBA that I, I, I'm not sure what's going on with this, but Zion Williamson, who I think is the next big superstar in the NBA, I think his flair and abilities are going to translate almost like Steph Curry. I talked about that last week, how Steph has flair. Zion does as well, and I think he's going to be the guy we see going forward as 
the biggest pitch man, the biggest celebrity in the league. But he's on a minutes restriction. And the Pelicans cost themselves a game, a game that likely will keep them out of the playoffs going forward. They kept them out in the fourth quarter the other day, and it doesn't make sense. He had three months off to get in shape, to get healthy, and there's still a minutes restriction. Look, if the season had finished out, we're almost to the start of training camp for the next season. Would there still have been a minutes restriction then? At some point, the Pelicans need to take the kid gloves off of Zion and let him go. If he's not in shape, that's a problem with Zion in the team because they got to get him in shape. and He's got to get himself in shape. He's got to continue to work hard to get there. And I really think if he does that, he's going to be somebody who's going to be a great, great player going forward. So great to see the NHL and the NBA achieving what they had set out to do. But I think it's even more than that. If you watch the games, it has been spectacular early on. Golf major this weekend, that means Tiger Woods back on the course, certainly. This major is in San Francisco. It is the PGA Championship. It'll be at Harding Park, the TPC at Harding Park. If you live on the East Coast, as I do, it's a primetime event. I love golf at primetime. It'll be on until 10, 11 o'clock at night, and it'll be fun to watch. There are a lot of guys who are opting out. Padre Carrington, Lee Westwood, J.B. Holmes, Charles Howell, Francesco Molinari. They're not playing this weekend for various reasons. But Tiger is back. He's going to be on the course. Brooks Kepka, guy who always comes up big in, in majors, playing well. Last week, he had a chance to win, but he ended up making double bogey on the 18th hole, finished three shots back of Justin Thomas, who was playing great golf. Thomas is a major winner as well. Golf has handled the pandemic and the restart exceedingly well. They have done everything that they need to do and will continue to do it. And I think this time around, with a major coming up, this is a chance for golf again to steal some spotlight in a time where they're competing with a lot of other sports. But this is going to be fun this weekend. So keep an eye on the golf as well. Well, that's it for this week's Falcon Around. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. And uh, hopefully we have a lot more live sports to talk about because it is fun talking about stuff that's actually going on versus what we hope will go on at some point. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. Talk at you next week.